Can you hear that? Nothing like an open fire. You know, uh, back in days of old, our ancestors actually used to look into the flames and make up stories based on the flickering shapes they saw within. They'd use the shapes as uh, as a way to free associate, you know, but like dreaming whilst awake. I mean, you didn't have to use an open fire. All you need really is something fast moving and chaotic. Anything that's going to throw up a lot of abstract shapes. You could stare into a bank of clouds or a waterfall. An early 90s Windows screensaver would be good. Uh, a pen of piglets. You could listen to your neighbours arguing through a wall or you could listen to a radio station in a country you don't know the language. Basically, take any of these things and if you spend enough time with them, you'll find a way to take all those abstract shapes and make sense of them. Stare at anything long enough and you'll find a way to make it all about you. For example, not that long ago, I uh, found myself looking at the Twitter feed for Fox's Biscuits, not a sponsor, by the way. It just seemed like a quiet, melancholy corner of the internet. I just wanted some space to myself. Still, it only took a couple of minutes scrolling through this biscuit manufacturer's social media account for it to transform in my mind into some kind of attack on my own self-worth when it's constant bragging about how any day could be a party day with a packet of party rings each post receiving one like usually from the same bespectacled old man the whole thing yeah it just started to feel like a metaphor for my life you know stress eating party of one yelling into the void of the internet I just had this sudden urge to attack Fox's biscuits, you know, to write something mean under every post. Something along the lines of expand your interests and get a fucking life, biscuit wankers, that kind of thing. All of which, of course, you know, I, I recognise now as a projection of my own self-loathing. Sometimes we're staring into the flames when we don't even realise it. Dreaming ourselves upon the nonsense of others, joining dots where there is no picture. We're so good at it, we don't even realise that we're doing it half the time. We all do it, of course. It's not just conspiracy theorists and narcissists like me. We all make patterns out of random data. And I guess the data has been particularly soupy lately. I'll just chuck another log on the fire there, won't you? Yep. It all leads back to the fire. Back in olden times, of course, we had different explanations for these kinds of processes. Some saw the interpretation of flames as communion with the gods, like the old um, burning bush guiding the decision of Moses. In ancient Tibet, flames were used to make sense of inexplicable acts of nature. Pyromancy, essentially. The flames giving us the answers no one else will. Now, some forms of pyromancy involve throwing salt into the fire to stimulate the shapes within. Others use laurel leaves or straw. However, for my own methods, 
of pyromancy. I prefer to use this. This here novelization of the film Rumble in the Bronx, starring Jackie Chan. One page at a time. I throw it into the flames. I let the shapes dance as they may. It's a little esoteric, I'll admit, but this book has special significance for me. I mean, for one, I wrote it many, many years ago now. I wasn't hired by the film producers or anything. This was a personal passion project of mine. The book is self-published, although you wouldn't know to look at it. Right? It looks pretty legit. And I should say, like, I don't burn pages from this book because I think the thing is stupid or embarrassing. I mean, it is those things. But, uh, you know, that's not why I burn it. I burn the book as a uh, ceremonial way of reliving the processes of writing it, which in many ways was like looking into a fire all of its own. Now, I wouldn't necessarily call the process of writing this book a pleasant experience to relive. I mean, actually, writing the novelization of Rumble in the Bronx was quite a dark experience in my life. Still, it's cathartic to revisit that darkness from time to time. I mean, if you're interested, I, I could tell you the story of how I wrote this book. I mean, we've got a long night ahead of us, after all. It's uh, probably too cold to do much sleeping tonight. Ah, <coughs> oh, sorry. My dyslexia playing up again. <coughs> well, I tell you what, as you can see, this copy here is um, pretty much down to the cover. So, why don't you make yourself useful and go grab us a new copy off the pile there. Yeah, the stack's just over there in the corner. Don't mind him, he doesn't know what he's saying. I've got enough copies of the novelization of Rumble in the Bronx to keep this fire going for a few years yet. Got about 35 in the corner there. About another 600 upstairs. While you're up, how's about um, refilling our brandy glasses? I mean, uh, I do it myself, but uh, as you can see, it's actually quite hard to get out of this giant leather armchair. I mean, you can see, look, my feet don't even touch the floor in this thing. Thanks, kid. <sighs> Come on, bring your own chair closer to the fire now. This house is cold. Don't think I don't know it. I understand this probably isn't how you wanted to spend your birthday. But I am so happy you're here with me, kid. And now you're five years old. Five. Some, not me, would say too young for brandy. But I say, well, we don't all age at the same rate, do we? Actually, in retrospect, I probably should have bought you some of those party rings. I can't believe I slipped my mind after all that. Anyway, as promised, Rumble in the Bronx. Or as my novelization was called, A Rumble in the Bronx. You've got to stay one step ahead of those intellectual property lawyers. A Rumble in the Bronx by Ross G. Sutherland. Adapted from the 1995 screenplay by Five Ma and Edward Tang. With additional content by the author. Now, I understand you're probably too young to have seen the Hong Kong comedy action film starring Jackie Chan that served as the source material for this novel. But, well, the basic story follows Jackie Chan, who plays a Hong Kong cop who's visiting New York for a wedding, who then, through a series of complications, 
ends up helping a young lady defend her newly purchased mini supermarket from local marauding punk rockers. The punks are basically the antagonists of the first two acts, but a third act, it gets a bit complicated. Uh, the punks actually end up renouncing their punk spirit and join with Jackie Chan in order to see off some diamond thieves. But for the most part, the punks are the baddies, which continues a cinematic tradition that has been going pretty much as long as punk rock itself, right back to, I want to say Death Wish in 1974. This is the tradition uh, in storytelling of using punk rock as a kind of symbol of moral turpitude, suggesting that disaffected teenagers have been essentially brainwashed by their culture into becoming looters and murderers. I mean, it's not a coincidence either that these movies often tend to get set in New York, which throughout the 70s and 80s was struggling through this escalating crime wave, the product of mass poverty and overcrowding with punk rock growing as a movement in a kind of angry reaction to these conditions. But then in these killer punk films like the cause and effect ends up getting turned around so punks somehow become the reason for the problem not the cultural reaction to it of course like the the trope of the murderous punk villain gets watered down film to film over the years by the time it reaches a 1994 hong kong comedy i mean these these punk villains feel pretty goofy but still it's part of a long tradition of othering disaffected youth and indulging in the fantasy that certain artists can lead their fans into individual acts of violence. I mean, I know you're only five years old, but you know what I'm talking about, right? You know, there's always someone selling this story. See also comic books, video games, rap music, Dungeons and Dragons. It's even in the news right now with that damn new hangover film that everyone's talking about. But look, I, I see your face. Look, don't, don't let me put you off. The film Rumble in the Bronx is a masterclass of physical action. The fight scenes are incredibly choreographed. Jackie Chan is amazing. It is beautiful to see him in action. Now, of course, I realize all of that is lost in the novelization process. I do recognize that as a flaw in the whole project. Rumble in the Bronx, not necessarily known for its story. Still, I tried my best to still capture the energy of the fight sequences. And uh, not to blow my own horn, but I, I do feel like I, I gave... Chan's character, a certain interiority that was missing from the original. So after a few full starts, I discovered that the, uh, the trick to the process was to slow the film down to precisely one quarter speed, and then write the book so it tracks at exactly that same pace. That way, I had enough space to manoeuvre verbally between the punches and projectiles. Truth is, though, see, I lived inside those fight scenes for so long. I mean, months on end, mapping every punch, every kick. Eventually, just like those ancient Zoroastrians saw their god in the flames, I too began to see things. Things deep inside the intricate physical architecture of the film's fight sequences. What was once a rumble became a voice. <clears throat> of course, the so-called literary tastemakers weren't ready for the book at the time. Still, on a cold night like tonight, and it is snowing again, look. 
on nights like tonight, when the boogins rise, when we tell each other ghost stories to remind ourselves of evil, if only to redouble our efforts to fight it. I'd like to take a copy of this book from the pile and release that horrible voice within through the transfiguration of the flames. This maybe this is too much for a five-year-old, right? It's too much. Listen, the, the, the headline is, I wrote a novelization of Rumble in the Bronx. It gets pretty dark. That's all you need to know. Okay, good. Right, so listen. Look, just tear out a handful of pages from the front of the book here. Perfect. Now, throw them on the fire. Now just keep your eyes on the flames. So I read you a chapter from the book. It seems you tore out everything up to chapter 9, so chapter 9 it is. Just keep looking at the fire. Just keep looking. Keep looking. Chapter 9 The Tony Gang Gets a House Call I entered the gang hideout To find a party in full swing These bozos were too busy celebrating To even notice an outsider among them It seems everything I'd heard was true Punk rock had corrupted the heart of America even as a police officer back in Hong Kong, I'd heard the stories how this hateful music had turned the youth of this country into amoral, flamboyant crime machines. If only the electric guitar had never been invented, I wouldn't be here. In fact, there'd be no need for police officers at all. If punk had never been invented, this warehouse would probably still be a functioning industrial unit, making good quality key rings or classic New York fudge. But then Johnny Rotten came along and society crumbled like shitty fudge. To my ears, the music in here sounded like a goat screaming over artillery fire, but it was sending the Tony gang into paganistic frenzy. Every biker punk lost in their own private world of crime and sex, their bodies half vanished in the blue fog of cigarette smoke that filled the hideout like a funeral veil. Their brightly coloured, tattered street punk clothes could be interpreted as creative youthful exuberance, but then I thought about Elaine's supermarket, how it too had been full of beautiful colours, how Elaine had poured her own youthful spirit into the curation of those supermarket shelves. And the punks had taken all that away from her. They'd smashed her supermarket into a punk wasteland. They took a bat to every counter, every pane of glass, all those pyramids of Pepsi cans, destroyed forever. And now they were back here, in their cool warehouse, in the Bronx, lying in hammocks, giving each other hickeys, enjoying the 
fairy light ambiance, playing pool amongst stolen road signs and refrigerators, living it up inside this demented pop art collage, laughing at the madness they'd built around themselves. And right at the centre of it all, Tony L. Honcho, kicking back with two girls and a fresh bottle of white Zinfandel. Tony looked to me like someone grew a new Steve Gutenberg from a hair found in a toilet seat. If it wasn't for my uncle's wedding, he wouldn't even be in this fucking country. But now I was here, I wasn't leaving without a piece of Tony's ass. The stereo system was right behind me. Grabbing it with both hands, I yanked it free from its wiring. The DJ's cowboy hat seemed to fall off in shock. With a cry, I hurled the stereo system onto the pool table before me. I was the DJ now, and the song I was playing was called Fuck You, and I was calling every punk in this place to the dance floor. All eyes were on me now, including Tony's. Not a doubt in my mind, that man was miffed. I yelled slowly. I could feel every punk in the joint, tensing their pecs under their zebra print t-shirts. With a bloody cry, Tony hurled his Zinfandel at me, the bottle exploding against a post, waking a pirate-looking punk in a hammock by my side. On reflex, I kicked the pirate in the face, ejecting him from his net onto the floor like unwrapping a nasty toffee. A gunshot silenced the room once more. Tony had fired his piece at the clubhouse ceiling. He held the pose, gun aloft, stripy jumper tucked into his trousers to show he meant business. Tony slowly brought the gun down until all I could see was the naughty end. Leering like a low-rent masseuse, he drawled, This is where it ends, picture. You got the guns? I said. Drop the gun. Someone had entered the joint behind me. It was Nancy. Tony had seen me and Nancy together at the disco. He'd probably guessed that Nancy was done with him. Still, clocking Nancy seemed to make Tony want to do the honourable thing. Maybe Tony wasn't a true punk after all, retaining enough goodness in his heart to not blow away an unarmed man. Tony flung the primed and loaded gun over his shoulder without even looking to see if anyone was standing there, much to the rapturous approval of his fellow gang members. There was going to be an old-fashioned beatdown, and these psychos were loving it. The gang began to chant their leader's name. They were all Tonys now, all 50 of them. Without breaking eye contact once, Tony swept the broken stereo from the pool table. This was to be our arena. I whipped off my jean jacket. For a second, I wondered whether beating the shit out of a bunch of kids was a good move for a visiting police officer from another country. But then I thought, well, they started it. Tony jumped up onto the pool table like a nimble little Frenchman. I jumped up the same. It seemed we were about to play a game of pool. Full body pool. 
It was then I realised just how much Tony looked like Tony Blair, the newly elected leader of the British Labour Party. What did this punk even stand for? It looks like I was going to have to deconstruct this bastard the old-fashioned way. By which I mean with my fists. Tony's punch came at me like that Lumiere Brothers film of a train. He didn't even say, OK, let's start. A boxing style I recognised as Oxford silly buggers. Tony, it seemed, was on permanent attack, barely bothering to raise his guard. Ducking one slug, I gave Tony a biggin' sandwich to the gut, followed by a sharp Queensbury cold sore. But Tony's big, dumb swings kept on coming. They hurt like a hangover, shattered every object they touched, but I could feel that punk energy burning out already. That one-string bass guitar of his going slack. Punk can't last, Tony. Make way for the electric light orchestra. I tickle-slapped Tony to the brink of the table, who saved himself with a last-minute chandelier grab, which Tony then triumphantly wanged back in my face like a reverse Errol Flynn. He kicked me in the chest like a hotel door he'd lost the key to. I went face down on the felt, rolled from the table, narrowly escaping Tony's fuzz pedal stomp before lumberjacking his leg, bringing Tony crashing down upon the green felt himself. But before I could finish the fight, Tony's goons began to shove me back and forth, trying to buy Tony time for a quick punk revival. Tony raised his face from the felt and gave me a some 41-esque sneer. With all my might, I tried to flying kick that sneer off the face of the earth, but Tony was up too fast. Now we were both back on the pool table, Tony resuming his flailing haymakers. But now those punches, they felt to me like empty gestures. I felt like I could take them all day if I had to, a rolling MTV channel of them around the clock with the occasional news bulletin from Kurt Loder. If this was the true face of the Tony gang, I actually felt sorry for them. Is that who they were? Just tepid, Halloweening rich kids. For a second, I thought I might actually hug Tony and just patronize him into submission. But instead, I found myself going under his arm and grabbing his tiny butt my training had taken over and I trebucheted the poor cartoon oik across the room into a row of pinball machines. Tony crashed to the floor, shuddering. Expensive chiropractors flooding his future. What had I done? There was no way back now. I thought I'd stretched the whole fight as punk rock critique thing about as far as it could go. But now... There were 50 more punks waiting to show me how I'd grossly misrepresented their art form. A thug in a hacienda zoot suit came at me with a pool cue, bouncing me off a uh, counting crows looking long hair and into a couple of fratish beastie boys who, just because of their hat choices, had to be punched on principle. It seems everybody here wanted to prove their punk credentials to show me just how serious and authentic they could be. Now, chased by the entire fucking punk diaspora, I scrambled toward the back room of the hideout where the gang kept their stolen goods. A well-timed kick of a footstool left counting crows face-planting in a cloud of thrift-store dust. I back-tipped from one armchair into another armchair, as if satirising the arbitrariness of consumer choice, then wheeled my chair over to a row of stolen fridges. 
I flung one open to show that it was <clears throat> no longer cool. My play on words vexing a punk long enough for me to wang him in the head with the freezer door. The next punk cut the air around me with a pool cue, as if trying to divide punk spirit from media exploitation. Not interested, I thought, spinning an armchair into his groin. Though, as my spree continued, kicking punk after punk in the face, I realised I was losing control. I watched a pirate metal punk crumple to the floor like a toddler, and yet I continued smashing shit, remorseless, clearly. I had the same rage in me that I hated in them. And that made me angry. A punk tried to crush me between two fridges, like a metaphor for society. I vaulted to the top of the fridge, then scrambled onto the top of another. Because there's always a new model, right, isn't there? We're all slaves to progress. See, I get the punk thing. I tipped back the fridge forward rolling down the door straight into some punk sellout in 800 quid Vivian Westwood tartan trousers. I pummeled his stomach like I was pissing in his lobster bisque, the rich prick. The Counting Crows fan came at me with a pool cue while a punk in a silk shirt hurled a TV at my head. Whatever shows he wanted me to watch, I wasn't interested. No proper punk would even know the word television. I gave the Counting Crows guy one for sorrow right in his chest. I didn't even have a problem with his musical politics per se, but the wordplay was solid, so I went with it. And I launched myself and Mr. Silkshirt. Punks aren't supposed to do delicates. Why is everyone doing it wrong? Call yourself a punk, but you don't like pain, you hypocrite. I'd never even met a punk ten minutes ago, but now I knew I was a goddamn world expert. How did youth culture have so many contradictions? And why is it down to me to continually and aggressively point them out? Oh, so you hate society, but you still wear hats, I see. How about a television set on your head, Judas? My limbs were moving of their own accord now. I couldn't leave these punks alone. I was obsessed with them. I chucked one of them into an open fridge like a coffin. No. Not like a coffin. That's not what I wanted. I was just asking questions. I was trying to understand them. I was just trying to have a debate, yeah? The punk opened the door to get out, so I punched him in the nose like a whack-a-mole. I didn't say you could leave, though, did I? Stay in the fucking coffin. And all the while, the punks kept coming. One winding me with an empty shopping trolley, like some shitty poem about capitalism. What was next? Stabbing me with an orphanage for closure sign. I kicked a hole right through the punk's hacky metaphor and staggered back to my feet. All the while, the punks kept coming. Regaining composure for a second, I decided to escape, clambering over a partition wall, only to find myself standing by the pool table once more, back at the scene where I fought with Tony. Somehow, the pool table was now covered in beer bottles, none of which had been there when I was fighting here before. Uh... Some punks were trying to grab the bottles to use as weapons. I keep them out of their hands. But more importantly, where did these bottles come from? How long had I been fighting in that warehouse anyway? Minutes, hours, days. I could feel time falling away from me like a booster rocket. There was no stopping me now. No matter how long it took, I was going to transform every object in this warehouse into a weapon. I was going to give 
every single item in there a brand new purpose. Namely, smacking punks in the face. I hadn't even got to the pinball machines yet. And there's a whole room of stolen TVs to work through. There's some skis over there that I'm planning to kind of recycle into a kind of melee pike thing. Then, once I'd finished processing the warehouse, I'd just move on to the street outside. Every parked car, every bus stop, every cigarette kiosk in the Bronx turned into a weapon. Every pillar, every tile, every crate, every post, every shop, every monument, every hospital, every borough, and so on, so on, and so on. Anything that I could use to attack these stupid fucking kids. Anything I could use as a metaphor for my hatred. I would pick up and smack them with it. One day they'd thank me. I looked down at my body. It appeared I was in the middle of picking up a pinball machine and launching it across the room. I hadn't even noticed I was doing it. The show was running itself now. More punks were running in to replace their friends. Punk after punk after punk. And I was so happy to see them. The punks kept coming. Thank God, the punks kept coming. Don't you know you're the scum of society? quite enough from the novelization of Rumble in the Bronx. Do I need to give a postscript to say that I imagine in real life Jackie Chan is probably a really nice open-minded guy and uh, not the kind of guy who spends all their time online pestering kids trying to snarkily analyse youth culture as I've portrayed him here. I don't think I'm that kind of guy either. I hope that's clear. That's just the fire gods talking through the flames, you know. Dickheads that they are. This episode of Imaginary Advice was written and produced by me, Ross Sutherland. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Ross G. Sutherland. There's also a Facebook page called um, Imaginary Advice Podcast. It's a bit of an odd episode this month, but it's the fifth birthday of the show. And um, I always try to push the boat out a little bit further on birthday episodes and do something uh, extra risky. This podcast is funded and supported by you, the listener, you idiot. What are you playing at? This is nothing. This is nothing. Still, that only makes me more grateful. So thank you so much for being so cavalier with your time and money. Thank you to anyone who has donated money to the podcast through Patreon. Uh, this show would literally not exist without you. Um, Patreon supporters who give $5 or more get a bonus episode around the new year time. Last year, it was a little mini series about the UK riots. I'll be working on this year's bonuses very soon. Patreon supporters who give $15 or more get two bonus episodes. I try and do something extra special for that. Over $25 and you can commission a poem from me on any subject you like. I did one of those commissions this month and really enjoyed writing it. I've got some more to do and um, those are going to be coming really soon. 
if you'd like to support the podcast yourself, uh, you can do so by going to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash Ross G Sutherland. I am unbelievably happy that this show made it to five years and for the love and help that it's received along the way. So thank you. It's also my birthday too. Uh, we move in steps, so I'm off now to go work on my high kicks. I'll be back soon with more imaginary advice. Bye. <laughs>